Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. Charity Cabango is the guest this week and she's an inspiration. She's co-founder and director of Entrepreneurial Solutions Partners. Her work is focusing on leading strategic planning engagements to startups across Africa. Charity is Canadian and an engineer who used to design cars for GM, but now she's doing what she loves best, working with women entrepreneurs in Africa, primarily in Rwanda, her parents' birthplace, which she still has a strong attachment to. She also advises governments and state organisations and banks on how to support and develop businesses in Africa. In many of the same ways, that you walk into a bank and you see men on the walls. They're actually white men on the walls. Um, and so how do you create an environment? How do you create opportunities that reflect this demographic? Women can often rule themselves out of finance projects, she says. Not an unreasonable assumption given previous history. But she says the evidence shows that women are much better risks for banks the world over as they are known to be better at repaying their debts. One of the challenges we see quite often is women self-eliminate. They don't actually apply for funds or programs, um, even when they're targeted by... So we need to find ways to make sure they know, actually, this money is for you. Charity is optimistic for life and the economy post-COVID in Rwanda. She says the government has handled the situation very well there by comparison with many other places. But I think in terms of a health crisis, it's been quite well managed. Uh, the next challenge will be how do you how do you uh, reignite and um, boost your e- economic development uh, to compensate for the challenges of 2020 slash 2021. I'm joined today by Charity Cabango. You're very welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. Charity, I believe you're the co-founder and director of Entrepreneurial Solutions Partners. Tell me, what do you do? What is Entrepreneurial Solutions Partners? Well, first of all, thank you for having me and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Um, And yes, Entrepreneurial Solutions Partners is um, a firm that was started by myself and Eric Kaku. Um, uh, We're just going on 10 years. And the firm really started with this idea that uh, entrepreneurs are a catalyst for prosperity. They have the ability to create prosperity for themselves, for their communities, and ultimately for their their countries. Um, And so we wanted to do something to enable entrepreneurs in Africa. Uh, we're all uh, African and African diaspora. Um, and so that was really the why behind we started, why we started the firm. And we we go about that in a couple of ways. The first is with programs directly supporting entrepreneurs. So incubators, accelerators, um, anything where we're working to you know help a business scale from one point to the other. And the other is uh, what we call our insights practice, where we advise leaders, whether that's government or donor partners or, uh, you know, any sort of organization that wants to enable private sector or that's looking for strategic support on how they can um, how they can be a partner in, in really enabling businesses to grow. So most of the countries that you work with are in Africa. Is that right? Yes, a hundred percent of them are at this point. We uh, we have an office in Rwanda uh, that supports kind of East and Southern Africa, and then an uh, an office in Abidjan in Cote d'Ivoire that supports West Africa, uh, predominantly Francophone West Africa. So tell me, why Rwanda? Were you born there? I know you have some links to Rwanda. 
Rhonda is is home on a cellular level is the best way I can describe it. My, both my parents are Rwandan, and although they lived um, kind of all over East Africa, uh, and then I grew up in Canada, uh, there's just something, um, and I think many others can can attest to this connection to home, uh, that I've always just felt deeply connected to Rwanda and um, and started going back, you know, kind of after 94, when it was kind of safe to do so more and more. And uh, I think it was in 2005, or 2006, rather, I went um, on a short-term uh, work assignment through the UNDP, uh, working on a strategy for Rwanda's ICT sector, essentially the beginning of its Silicon Valley um, uh, strategy for an ICT hub. And uh, and that's when I fell in love with the country, but also with this idea that maybe I could do work that contributes in some small way um, to the country's uh, development. I believe it's an absolutely beautiful country. I have a, a neighbor who's been there and worked on the tourism sector. Mm-hmm. And- could not believe how beautiful, how well organized um, and how keen for for future development. There's this appetite for growth in Rwanda, too, isn't there? Have you found that? Yes. And I love it when other people say it so I don't sound biased, but it is all of those things and more. Um, we actually do quite a bit of work in tourism and hospitality as well. Um, so it is beautiful, a stunning place to visit, very safe Um uh, very easy to navigate, um, but also yes, there's there is this uh, shared vision for for the country's development and strong leadership, um, and I think that has mobilized people towards really how do we how do we develop, how do we grow, how do we organize um, and and make a better country for future generations to come. Well, you talk about strong leadership there. I mean, the whole purpose of these podcasts is to focus on women's leadership. How is women leadership um, in Rwanda? How is it a growth area for women? Are women very centrally involved in uh, governance and in business and in entrepreneurship? You know, I think um, I think Rwanda has uh, uh, been a case study in many ways in terms of women's leadership. Um, The the parliament um, has uh, the largest number of women um, in cabinet um, in the world, um, to my recollection. So it's, I think you're it right. Is, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and that trickles to other sectors as well. So in in, in business, you see women in leadership at all levels, uh, C level. Um, it's not uncommon to have the the CEO of a bank, major banks, and uh, you know large corporations all be women and actually young women. Um, so it, it is uh, it is pretty phenomenal to see what can happen when you allow women into the ranks of leadership. It's not a country without challenges around gender by any means. Um, but certainly this idea that women can and should be in leadership isn't one of the things that I think it's really struggling with. It's actually benefited from having the voice um, and the strength of women uh, across many different sectors. Yeah, I've heard that. I mean, you know, we're we're only, as we'd say, in the Haiti place where, you know, we've about 20 percent women in our parliament here in Ireland. Um, so, I mean, to get up to, to I think it's 50 percent, isn't it? At least you have huge representation through your parliament and through uh, government and, and at all sections. It's really phenomenal. What do these countries like Rwanda need now from the financial services sector? What what things do they need to help them with their growth path, to help them with developing the country? Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, 
I'll start by first saying I think the the number is actually sixty four percent, which is, which is you know not only outstanding in terms of like just a number on its own, but I also think it's interesting that it's not it's without any like quota. Like you don't have to have they haven't designated this many seats as uh, for women. It is just a natural outpouring of who they feel is the strongest candidates for leadership. Um, so I wanted to start with that. But I think your question around financial services, I, uh, we work a lot with the private sector and with businesses and continuously and consistently, consistently across uh, Rwanda, but also across the continent, access to finance remains one of the largest um, constraints that businesses uh, raise as a challenge to grow their business. Um, so I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we try to do in all of our programming is we we offer, we, we call it intelligent capital. So it's this combination of technical assistance for businesses um, with some form of access to finance, access to capital. And so that can be done through partnerships with banks. Um, that has been done uh, oftentimes with a partner uh, who's you know, helping facilitate or fund the programming, whether it's with grants or renewable uh, low interest loans. Um, the reality is, is that on the continent, we don't have the range of financing options that you find in many other places. So venture capital, all these other, um, all these other options for financing a business, uh, it's really difficult because really mo- for the most part, they're being financed through debt and through very high interest debt, um, which is a, certainly a constraint when businesses are looking to grow. Um, I was reading some of the research around you before um, the interview here, and it says in the United States, research has shown that black entrepreneurs are wealthier when compared to black workers who are not self-employed and that black entrepreneurship can help close the wealth gap between white and black families. Have you found this or how does it actually work? Yeah, this, that, that's from a piece I wrote recently, and it, it really was trying to draw parallels between the experience of um, black entrepreneurs in North America and, and uh, you know, black African entrepreneurs on the continent. And there are so many, but one of them is really um, starts from the premise that actually they, they do entrepreneurship can. It's not the only, it's certainly not like a magic key, but it is part of a solution for addressing um uh, a gap inequity inequity in terms of uh, prosperity um and access to to wealth um so there's there's something there and then once you start to scratch a little bit further the question becomes well why aren't um why aren't black entrepreneurs in, on the continent or or in diaspora having the same success? What are the challenges and the constraints? And again, access to finance is one of them. You go into a bank as a black uh, entrepreneur um, and they're less likely to receive financing, to be accepted, um, to be granted a loan or to be, um, to be f- backed by VC. Um, so more and more there's focus around how do we develop um, financing and how do we focus and target uh, opportunities for these um, these prosperity creators? How do we enable them uh, to do what they're designed to do? Fantastic. What are the other constraints? I presume education, uh, previous experience, or just the technical level in the country as well. What What are the other constraints? You know, I I wouldn't say necessarily education. Oftentimes they're they they have they understand their their sector quite well, but I do think there is some um, some some very targeted technical assistance that is needed. So access to kind of business support, um, 
access to mentors um, and or coaches, I think is a really, I mean, we can talk about this even in women leadership. Mm. It's really hard to, um, to move towards something that you don't see someone like to go on uncharted uh, course. So when you're able to see someone you admire who looks like you, who has a similar background to you um, as a CEO of a, of a bank, as a woman, you naturally are going to see that as an opportunity that you have the actual ability to access. As an entrepreneur, it's very similar. If, if we work in tourism and hospitality, if a young woman doesn't think she can run her own tourism and hospitality business because she's never seen anyone from her town or her village who looks like her, who's actually been able to run their own business, it is actually very hard to do. So some of the work is really around um, mindset and creating opportunities for people to see mentors um, that create that creates a lot of impact. I think that's the story the world over. I was on a, a conference last week by a group from the UK, which you should check out, called Wealthy Her. And their mission is financial literacy and financial education and empowerment for women all over. And they had women from Asia as well on, on the calls. Yeah, but the same things keep coming up. It's lack of confidence, lack of, you know, you cannot be what you cannot see. And, you know, in a previous conversation with Tamara Gillen, I had of Wealthy Her, she was saying like a lot of women, this is in the UK now, <laughs> would go into a bank and the, the the whole geography of the places, you know, there's it just doesn't feel right because you see pictures of old men in, in black suits mm-hmm. up on the wall in gold frames and everything is geared around the male model of banking, of life. You know, there's no accounting for time when women, usually women, have um, other constraints, you know, caring responsibilities, juggling their time during the day. So there's a need for that whole shift in in banking and uh, and finance the world over, but also recognising that women have different needs when it comes to financing and to developing their own businesses, I think. Um, But really interesting what you're saying there about, you know, having mentors. Um, So when you're advising uh, clients, you know, as part of entrepreneurial solutions who would your clients be are they the actual uh, people who want to develop a business or are you talking to finance or government organizations all of the above we really think this is this is a, a problem that you know can't be addressed uh, at one level so we work directly we have for example, um, a program for young entrepreneurs in tourism and hospitality in Rwanda called Tourism Inc. Um, and so we work with them with the, their their startups, their early stage businesses. Um, we look, we work with them to really, you know, kind of. Uh, get clarity on their business model, get their marketing, address some of their early stage constraints, uh, prototype and help them kind of scale their business. At the same time, we might be working on um, a post-COVID assessment of the tourism and hospitality sector uh, to help the larger stakeholders figure out how they're going to organize and advocate and work in the sector. Um, So we work with stakeholders at a range of different levels um, because we think that entrepreneurs don't work in a vacuum. They don't exist in a vacuum. They need government to be aligned. They need banks to be uh, aligned. Uh, So wherever possible, we really do try to have a strategic role with some of the stakeholders while also working um, directly with the entrepreneurs to help them, you know, with the day to day challenges of running their business. I think when people think about people investing in Africa and in places like Rwanda, they think of um, British industry or, you know, 
British banks or they think of the United States or Canada. But from what I'm hearing from people from Africa, a lot of Chinese money is going into Africa in various different parts at the moment. Have you come across that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's, uh, you know, I think people are seeing opportunities. It's not necessarily just benevolence, but I think, um, you know, there is a lot of development happening. So whether it be construction or businesses, um, mining, uh, extraction, exactly mining. Um, and so there is there is a bit of a dash to see who can seize these opportunities. Um, certainly in Rwanda and, and other places, you see, you know, Chinese construction companies, Chinese development companies uh, coming in and and and, um, and doing what they can to seize the opportunities, just like everyone else. I think that's um, that is the globalization of the world. So, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a whole new word once we if we ever get out of COVID. I presume we're, we're on the, the final stretch of it. How has uh, how has Afri- Africa or Rwanda in particular, how has it been coping with COVID? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, COVID has hit just like I think, you know, in everywhere else in the world, it's a little bit different everywhere you go. Um, the, the realities on the ground are different. Um, the experience uh, and the response from government is different. Uh, and so, you know, Rwanda was very quick to shut down, for example, hard shut down. I believe it was um, March of, of 2020, um, shut down its airport, shut, you know, did a very um, you know, fairly hard lockdown, um, but then ha- saw a quick drop in cases and, and has been, for the most part, other than a little bit of a, an uptake kind of in around December, um, been fairly good at managing it. Um, I shouldn't say fairly, has been excellent at managing yeah. uh, the numbers. Uh, but you go to other places and there hasn't been as much, um, you know, control measures put in place uh and so you do see you know larger numbers um you know i compare to kenya for example um other places you see a significant number of cases but i I think it's actually also for the most part um certainly less than we've seen in north america and many places in europe um so you know they've been managing in terms of the health crisis that's one piece the the second piece is is really the economic crisis that i think everybody's wrestling with at the same time um is with all of these lockdowns and shutdowns and diminished travel um certainly countries like rwanda that depend heavily on tourism have been have been affected um, greatly by the economic side of this 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 challenge. So the hope is that as things start to reopen and and there's more comfort around travel and there's more movement, um, that that piece will will also stabilize. Um, but I think in terms of a health crisis, it's been quite well managed. Uh, the next challenge will be how do you how do you uh, reignite and um, you know, boost your economic development uh, to compensate for the challenges of 2020 slash 2021. I know you've written as well about black businesses matter, leveling the playing field for black entrepreneurs in Africa and the diaspora. What what do you think can be done to level that playing field? Well, it's it's it's, you know, many of the same things that are challenges for women. It's not a it's not a um, it's not a numerical minority, but in many of the same ways that you walk into a bank and you see men on the walls, they're actually white men on the walls. Um, And so how do you create an environment? How do you create opportunities that reflect this demographic that are responsive to their needs that, um, that really target uh, 
and support and enable um, um, black entrepreneurs on the continent, you know, developing programs that are really designed for them by them um, and that respond to the, the particular challenges of doing business on the continent because it is different. Um, how do you develop? That's really what we've focused on is how do we develop programming, entrepreneurial programming that is tailored to the needs of entrepreneurs operating in, um, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or in, in Francophone West Africa. Um, I think that's really a part of the solution, much the same way if a bank wants to start address this challenge of, you know, women are not accessing to fi finance the same way as their male counterparts, the bank needs to shift. The bank needs to think about how do we, you know, make sure that it responds and reflects the demographic we're trying to serve. So I think that's that's certainly a part of it. And it and it's many of the same things. It's, you know, seeing yourself in the doorway. It is, uh, you know, having uh, having somebody speak your language, for lack of a better word, and understand your lifestyle. I was just going to come to that. Um, just language. It's just mm -hmm. people don't understand. A lot of it is jargon. And I can imagine that's people living in the UK or Asia. You know, if you come to a different um country with different social norms, different way of doing business. It's another barrier again. So, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle for people who are just trying to make a living and trying to grow a business, isn't it? Do you think there's a lot of listening needs to be done by banks, by people who want to help out? Do they need to listen a bit harder? Absolutely. We we run a program. Um, we've run it for many years in Cote d'Ivoire called Finance Engage. It's a, uh, essentially engaging the finance sector. Um, and part of it is really around um, presenting to the banks the needs of the, the small businesses in their in their country. So we, we, we collect all this data around what are the challenges, the constraints, the needs of small business, small and medium sized businesses. And then we go back to the banks and say, OK, you actually have a mandate to finance business. So you have for the most part, all they all have targets around, you know, uh, dispersing funds to small, and medium sized businesses. Here's what we're actually hearing from them. Now, based on that, now, what can you actually commit to? And then we have a whole event um, around that commitment. Um, and it one, it signals to the small businesses that they've been heard. Um, two, it shows them that, you know, there's actually resources that these banks have allocated for them. Uh, in the same way you could have a bank say, we are committed to financing 40% women. That actually does something for women because the, the the one of the challenges we see quite often is women self-eliminate. They don't actually apply for f funds or programs, um, even when they're targeted by. So we need to find ways to make sure they know actually this money is for you. Um, so that's one of the things that comes out of our finance engage um, program is this idea that entrepreneurs know that they've been heard. They know that there's financing uh, targeted and available for them. And then there is a commitment from the banks that they're saying, you know, we're actually going to over the next year, just our target now, our commitment is to disperse X amount to the small to medium sized enterprises in our in our country. And we really feel like that's one way that you can tangibly start to move the needle in terms of access to finance. That's so we've fantastic. done that in Rwanda, mm -hmm. uh, but certainly for a number of years in Cote d'Ivoire. There was a similar system done here in Ireland. 
um, where we have a, a state semi-state organization called Enterprise Ireland. And what they did was they discovered that women weren't applying for the money for, you know, mm-hmm. for, for investment. And they said, what are we going to do here? So what they did was they ring fenced a special women's fund and they got huge subscription and some fantastic businesses came out of it. So there's a huge learning there to be done for financial institutions. I mean, they invest money and they make money. So it's in their own interest to invest, isn't it? Exactly. It is in their own interest to do so. I mean, and women, the, the data says women actually repay loans better than their male counterparts. Uh, so it's actually a good bet to make. The challenge is, is how how do you do it? You, ha- you have to be quite intentional um, if you're going to be able to engage a, a demographic that has been, you know, mar- marginalized, neglected, underserved um, for so long. So I think uh, many of the same lessons can can apply. Yeah. Do you come across sort of a patronizing or patriarchal sort of attitude sometimes when you go to financial institutions? Um, is this sort of an almost looking down their nose at kind of doing business with Africa? You know, in a yeah, post-colonial and, situation. Yes, I mean, there's there's certainly challenges around, uh, yeah, pa- patronizing. Um, you know, often you'll hear people say, "Well, they the the they aren't able to fill out our forms." Um, and, and in many ways, they're saying they're not bankable businesses; that they aren't businesses that would um, that would repay, that have the capacity to repay. But there's a there's a disconnect there to me in that. The, it assumes that the process that the banks have designed um, is flawless and that it is the the, the determinant of uh, a business's ability to repay. Uh, what we find is that, to your point around language, is sometimes people are just intimidated by the stack of paper, um, the stack of forms to fill out. Is it is it possible to do this in an interview? Is it possible to change how this is done so that it takes away some of the intimidation, but you still get the important information you need? Certainly, you can't lend money if you don't have a sense of uh, a company's you know, financial health. Um, but are there other ways to do that health check that can be developed that uh, better fit the needs of the entrepreneurs that you're dealing with? So whether that's you know, in North America, um, if you want to finance black businesses, maybe you need to look at, at the process that you've designed and does it, is it equitable? It, does it actually meet the needs of, of black entrepreneurs or women entrepreneurs? Um, and certainly the banks in, in Africa have uh, have to, to look at if we're not accessing the, the people that we're trying to serve, maybe there's something that can be done on our side. Maybe the problem isn't them not being able to meet the requirements, but actually our requirements, are they actually, do they need to be revisited? Sometimes it takes companies a lot of courage to actually look in the mirror and just ask themselves those questions. So doesn't it? Um, um, so before we finish up, and I'm really enjoying the conversation with you, but I know you've you've uh, calls on on your your day today. Tell us what are your pearls of wisdom? If you're ever asked for advice about life, about starting a business, about career, can you give me maybe five pearls of wisdom that you could share with us? Sure. Um, I think the first one that that comes to mind is um, really about defining success for yourself um, and having the courage to 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 not do what everyone else thinks is successful. Um, I, I started my career out in automotive. I'm an engineer by trade and and had a, a job that you know many of my um, my counterparts uh, kind of coveted working designing cars for GM. But I knew I wasn't happy. I knew I didn't care deeply about 
automotive. Um, and so it took it for me, one of the biggest life changing moments was saying, I'm okay with people thinking this is crazy, or this is not a good move. I'm okay with that, that uh, reputation or that, uh, that sense that I'm going to be the person who's going to De- determine my course of action and my course for life. Um, the other is advice, or maybe it's a, a freedom to um, to not have all the answers. So in the same way I knew I didn't want to do automotive, I didn't know exactly what else my life was going to look like. I didn't have it my 10-year plan. And I think for a lot of, you know, uh, type A, I, I like to call myself type, type B plus, but type A or type B plus people, um, we feel like we have to have an answer to our five-year and our 10-year plan. And I, I vividly remember coming home from an interview once and telling my mom, they asked me what I want to be when I grow up. They asked me what I want to do in 10 years. And she looked at me and said, I don't know. How are you supposed to know? And, you know, this is a woman who is, you know, 30 years older than me. Uh, and I suddenly had freedom to not have the answers because I admire my mom quite a, quite a lot. Um, and so I, I certainly share that with a lot of people. Like you don't have to have it all figured out today, tomorrow. You never actually have to have it all figured out. It's okay to just move towards the things that that ignite you and give you excitement and give you passion. So I think balancing those two um, things have been really key for me in terms of um, creating a life that I that I'm content with and that gives me joy and that is fulfilling. Uh, any more? I've got three there. That's fantastic. <laughs> but they're all fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the one of the ones that I always that I've heard. This isn't my own, um, but the biggest uh, professional decision you'll make is who you choose as a personal life partner. Um, so, you know, if you have great professional aspirations, um, be wise about who you choose to be in your corner when you come home, uh, cause it really does make a huge difference to somebody who's going to be your cheerleader on the days that things are not going well. Certainly entrepreneurial journey is, you know, has its ups and its downs. Um, and, you know, my husband took the, the lion's share of parental leave for our first child because we had just started this business. Um, and that none of my personal none of my professional life would have existed if i had if i hadn't had a, a personal partner that really has been a champion um for me pursuing all the things that make me excited and joyful and you know create impact in the places i want to have impact and share the excitement with you when it's, you have successes as well it's fantastic isn't you, it absolutely and that's actually the hardest part i think you know, I'm still learning to, to pause and celebrate um, 10 years later. Uh, he's very good at that. He's very good at, you know, wait a second. You just signed what kind of a contract? Let's 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 take a moment <laughs> and uh, and recognize that that was pretty uh, a pretty big deal. So, yeah, he's uh, he's teaching me that lesson still. I think we're always on a journey listening and learning from each other, aren't we? Um, Absolutely. Uh, what's the best money advice, financial advice you've ever got? What would you pass on? Yeah. Um, so I've heard it said two different ways. First is uh, pay your future self first, which basically sounds like, say, put your savings aside first. But what really resonated with me was when someone said, um, don't let today's self rob tomorrow's. Um, so you, it's really easy to 
to, to think something's important uh, today uh, or to want something for today. But if it's going to take away from your needs from tomorrow, you're actually ro- you're actually stealing from someone else and someone you care deeply about, someone who's really important. Um, so this habit of putting aside for the life you want or I want for, you know, five, 10 years from now, um, 20 years from now, 30 years, it's harder to do, to, to envision, but certainly making sure that that person is taken care of the same way you take care of your parents and your kids, um, I, I think is a, is, a, is a way that really stuck with me. Terrific. What are you doing uh, about sustainability? Well, I keep hearing this in every podcast and every interview I do at the moment. Sustainability, ESG, you know, governance and social care. It's it's permeating everything. And it's, it's wonderful to see. And I know uh, Rwanda has been at the forefront of environmentalism as well. But what do you do in your own life to be sustainable or to be conscious of the planet? Yeah, um, this is, again, one of those, you know, journeys that I think is uh, like continuous improvement. I think we're all kind of making these baby steps and sometimes that's bigger leaps. Um, personally, in my life, we live in Toronto, uh, a pretty big city, and we've chosen to live relatively close to my husband's work, close to my kid's school. We drive very little. Um, we think that, you know, being able to live in a walkable neighborhood and do our best to, um, to have our day-to-day tasks done without having to get in a vehicle not only is good for you know our health and for quality of life but actually is a small way we can make an impact on our environment um like with most things i think a lot of these start with a mindset i have three kids um nine seven i have to think about it and three um and so part of it for me is really thinking about the world that they're going to inherit. And it is actually, we're at a a point of crisis where, you know, they are going to have less um, access to natural beauty and natural resources than we did. Um, And so really thinking about things that have been my norm, you know, you go to the grocery store and you bag your bags in whatever bags they have available, plastic bags, that that was the norm my whole life and really challenging. If I continue to do that, they're actually not going to have access to the pond and the Creek and the, the green space that I did. So it's really challenging me to, you know, okay, I have to change how I live. I actually, the way that I've lived is actually not sustainable. So those little things, um, trying to shift them, trying to let you use less plastic, reuse a lot. We have lots of cousins nearby. So we have a little train of clothing and shoes, um, you know, really thinking about our purchases and our, um, and making sure that they're, you know, they're actually necessary. So reducing our consumption. I think COVID has really taught us an awful lot about that. And, you know, we haven't been able to go into shops here in Ireland for weeks, months, and particularly last yeah. year. So you find ways. <laughs> I mean, there's problems, really of course, with, with children's shoes and they have to be fitted for stuff like that. But, you know, you can get by with a lot less. And we've been so mm-hmm. consumer driven for decades now at this point. So thanks for sharing that. Tell me about music. I'm sure with, with the two of you and with the children in the house, there must be a lot of music there. So what what's what's on the playlist in your house? And, you know, what's your go to song? Maybe if you have a down day and you want to pick yourself up a bit, what's your go to song? So this is a great question. Um, I, we, this household loves music. Um, uh, and so we actually use music quite a bit. It, it curbs a tantrum. It, uh, 
it gets us all up and out when we need to go out on an errand. Um, one of the best gifts I've ever received, I turned 40 in November, COVID birthday. And um, a gift was actually my husband and my brother, who are big um, music lovers, collect, uh, like put together a playlist um, with people from my life, from, um, from all corners of the world, from my life. They all picked a song uh, that reminded me of them or that we shared over the years. And so I have this wonderful charities 40, 40 years of charity playlist that is kind of my go-to these days. Um, it's on all the streaming. They actually made it like a playlist on Apple and on Spotify. Um, so I kind of go there and depending on the mood, like if I need to be picked up, if I need to mellow out, if I need to focus, I can find basically like 50 of my favorite songs that remind me of, you know, 20 or 30 of my favorite people, uh, including each of my kids picked a song. So uh, that's usually my go to. That's usually where I go. So give me the name of one song. What's your favorite? Oh, man, I can't pick one favorite. Uh -huh. uh, let me um, let me look at this like an impossible. It's like choosing your favorite child. But um, <laughs> uh, there is um, a song on. Um, so I love so many different types of music, too. This even makes it harder. There is a song. If I do pick a morning song, I'm going to be specific to your question. Um, there's a song on Kanye West's album. Um, um, called Revelations 19.1. Um, so it's like from uh, his gospel album. Um, that would probably be my uh, my morning pick-me-up song. But there's so many. Fantastic. Such a great question. Uh, is faith important to you? Absolutely. Yeah, I am... Uh, I'm a pastor's kid. My dad, after retiring, became an Anglican, an ordained Anglican minister. Uh, we grew up with faith being pretty central to our, our family structure. Um, and it's certainly central to how I derive um, kind of ambition and, and direction and, uh, yeah, grounding, all of those things. And your moral compass, which is very important mm -hmm. when you come to your business. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation, Charity. Um, it's been fascinating to listen to the work you're doing and the best of luck with it for the future. You're doing very important work in the world. Thank you. And thank you for having me. This is uh, such a, like I said, a wonderful way to start a conversation like this. Uh, sunny day and getting to connect with someone so far away, but doing really important work as well. Having this, um, having these deep and meaningful conversations about women and leadership and, uh, and impact. So thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Thank you. That was Charity Cabango, co-founder and director of Entrepreneurial Solutions Partners. Thanks for listening today and for sharing your time with us. Stay tuned for our upcoming series on sustainability. And if you're working in this area and would like to tell us more about what you're doing, please email us on info at womeninleadership.ie. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Leading Women Pod and we're available to view on LinkedIn as well. We have a fabulous back catalogue of interviews. Please check them out on the website, womeninleadership.ie. From me, Angie Mazzetti, and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and take care. Mm -hmm.